Today, my guest is Adam Jacoby. Adam is a savvy entrepreneur with a 20-year global history of starting fast-growth companies. He's chairman of Esports Mogul and director for Centre of the Future. He was nominated for the 2017 Codex World Top 50 Innovators. He's outspoken, opinionated, with a strong bent for innovation and real democracy. He's the founder of founder and chief steward of the rising political movement, My Vote. Going from strength to strength, My Vote was a finalist in the 2016 Singularity University Grand Global Challenge Awards, and I believe 2018 is going to be the year of My Vote adoption, where it's going to go mainstream. Adam has recently returned from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, where it cemented its position as a world-leading democratic organisation when it took to the stage to announce chapters in India and the US, with candidates set to run elections from 2018. As one of only two democratic movements in the world to have a relationship with the UN, my vote is fast gaining the attention and interest of governments and NGOs around the world. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Cha-cha, my dog, would love, love, love you. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to have a chat with us today. Well, it's lovely to be here. The pleasure is all mine and kisses to Cha-cha. Good, good. I heard you just got a puppy too. So we did. We Cha-cha did. would be fully into you. That's right why now. I'm so tired because the puppy is waking up very early, but that's okay. <laughs> and I see you've got wee kids who have just started kinder and school. How's that going? Yeah, so four kids. It's busy um, schedule. You know, I got from grade five to um, childcare. Um, so it's good, you know. My my youngest daughter started kinder yesterday and yeah. my eldest had his 11th birthday yesterday. So oh. it's been, you know, there's a lot going on in the Jacoby household. It's so. busy, busy. Yeah. I saw a couple of the social media posts and I was thinking, I don't know how you do it. Uh, I basically just run on exhaustion 24-7 <laughs> is the way to get it done. Okay. So listen, we're here to talk about my vote predominantly. So what led you there and, and what is it? Um, so my vote is a, um, it's a democratic movement. It's a new way of looking at democracy going back to first principles, which is that everybody's equal, everybody has an equal voice, um, politicians are accountable, politics is transparent, money is removed so that there is equality of access, um, and ultimately it's a community decision-making mechanism where everybody has a say in the decisions that get made at a community level, at a government level. Um, so it took many, many years to redesign, and it was a strategic re-architecture of democracy. Um and, uh, you know, people are starting to take it seriously after seven years, which is nice. So so what led you to it? I mean, clearly you were an entrepreneur. It's yep. it's, a, it's a political space that you're looking at now. So yep. what, what took you from that to politics? Um, so I've what? always been interested in politics my whole life. Okay. Um, never intended to be a politician or to run, but always interested in I, – I think, I think I've been interested in a couple of aspects of politics – um, one is, uh, in particular, how decisions get made and the kind of decisions that get made, the quality of the decisions that get made. Um, and then the other element of it is um, how people use power 
Um, and, I, you know, that's something I saw a lot in a 25-year business career. Absolutely. Um, the abuse of power, the use for social good. Um, yeah, but, but, but equally, you know, there are great examples of people who are open and transparent and run amazing organisations. Mm. And then you look at what happens in the political environment, you go, well, why is that style of leadership not being adopted where actually it could do the most good and have the most impact? And so why I got into it, I suppose, is I think I was 24 years into my corporate career, startup yeah. career, um, and had businesses all over the world. I started my first business literally straight out of school, straight out of high school at 18. Um, and uh, I just got to a point where I was sick of being consumed every day by how to make a dollar, um, and I was sick of making wealthy investors wealthier. Um, and so, you know, I have four kids, as I said. Um, I'm becoming, I was becoming and remain concerned about the quality of the world in which they're growing up in mm. um, and particularly the quality of the leadership that's meant to guide us through some of these uh, broader challenges. And I said to my to my partner, look, I, I want to not start another business for once and um, I want to turn my attention, take some time off, and I want to just start thinking about this democracy thing because it's not working and I want to spend some time seeing if there is a way to make it work better um, and so spent probably more time than I'd like to admit thinking about that and noodling on it and playing with it and manipulating it and taking it apart and putting it back together. Um, and then after a couple of years, started going out and speaking to people. When it was a sort of, it had reached a form where you could articulate kind of the vision of what we wanted it to be or what we thought it could look like. Um, then started going out to community leaders and business leaders and former politicians and current politicians and Mm. I just took the temperature and that was a really important period of, of uh, development where people would go, look, I think you're on the right track, but you've kind of missed this point or you need to go back and understand why that happened or um, here are the practical ramifications of making those decisions. Um, and then a couple of years after that, we had what we thought was a market best practice model of how it could work. Um, and then I really genuinely took it to the street. So literally hired cafes at 7 a.m. before work started, mm. put out on social media, I want to have a chat about democracy, direct democracy. If, if interested. anybody's interested, come down. Um, and in the first few meetings, you know, 10 or 15 people came and then 20 people and then 50 people and then 100 people. Um, and all of a sudden you've got a volunteer workforce and you're off. And yeah. So, I mean, uh, what I found really interesting was when I was – you know, reading up on my vote was your your kind of take on the lens of being an entrepreneur. And if businessmen behaved in the way politicians do, and you'd be thrown out of your job as a CEO. So can you talk a little bit about that? It was, you know, in a way it was about, you know, we wouldn't sign a contract that we didn't know what we were yeah, going to do. So, I mean, that, that's very much a policy perspective that I talk about. So, but, I mean, the way, the way that we talk about it is that the best way to think about the way policy is created um, is that, in effect, we're being pitched a contract. So whether it's the left or the right of politics, whoever's in power at yeah. any given moment will come to us and say, hey, we want, we're going to adopt this piece of legislation. And most of the time, in fact, because election, election cycles are four years apart, yeah. um, we're not even part of that conversation. So they're just putting up legislation for their own edification because it suits a particular ideological bent. And, and we're just meant to adopt it and go, hooray, aren't we, uh, you know, aren't we lucky that we have people who can write a, a legal document? Who are representing yeah, us. Yeah, that's exactly right. But it, but in reality, it's kind of the same as, you know, if I were in business and I would go to my lawyer, the way that that legislation gets written, um, it, it'd be like going to my lawyer and saying, listen, Bob or Sarah, whoever my lawyer is at the time. Let's call um, her Sarah. Let's call her Sarah. <laughs> Sarah, um, 
you know, I want you to write a contract for me. What's the contract about? Well, I can't, I can't tell you exactly right now. And what's the end goal and what are you meant to achieve from it? Well, I'm not entirely sure. And, um, you know, how are you meant to cut it up so that it works practically in the ground? I can't tell you those details either. I mean, and, and in business, that will never happen. Right? It would never fly. You have to have real clarity about what you're doing. Equally, I think you know who you're building that contract for in business. So you're doing it for your customers and your shareholders. Ultimately, you're responsible to your shareholders. But if your customers aren't satisfied, you don't have a business. What we have in politics is a complete disregard for the core stakeholders, which is the constituency. And the irony of the situation we found ourselves in is that we now have a political system that rewards power by allowing that power to manipulate the system to entrench their own power. And we see that every day. Um, And so, you know, this is where we see continual erosion of citizens' rights. Um, You know, the US is worse than anywhere, um, Mm. whether it's gerrymandering, whether it's, you know, voter suppression, there's all sorts of things going on um, where the powers just say, well, there's nobody here to stop us. We've been elected. Ultimately, we can do what we want for a period of time. Mm. No one holds us accountable. Mm. The media does nothing to to Mm. hold us to account. Um, And so we will continue to bulldoze down this particular ideological direction and if we can sell a good story at the next election, we'll have another period of time to do it. Mm. And if we can't, well, we've got to do as much damage as we can right now mm. because we've got this period, this window of opportunity. Or mm. um, well, we've got so much skin in the game, we just need to earn as much money as we can for the party and yep. for ourselves. And yep. who cares about the electorate? Well, and for our donors. Is and the for other our donors, of course. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the, the distortion of, of that system is that democracy is, is about enacting the will of the people. And nowhere within that framework is anyone enacting what the people want because mm. nobody's asking what the people want. Mm. And so you, you can't, as a representative, as a leader, um, whether it be, you know, the local leadership of the local council here or the kind of conversations we have with presidents and prime ministers in Davos, you can't have that real uh, service, civic service, mm. um, in the absence of understanding what your constituency wants. Mm. Um, and equally, the big reminder that politicians work for us. We have this ongoing narrative where we're led to believe that by virtue of being elected, these people for some reason are better than us or wiser than us or have better answers than we do. Um, They should guide us and steer us in a particular direction. Um, And there's never a reminder that is actually we elected them. They work Mm. for us. They're here to serve our interest as a Mm. community. And we we actually pay their wages. And we pay their wages. The money that they pay, whether it's buying $55 billion worth of submarines or new infrastructure on roads, it's our money. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, these are parts of the dialogue that have been eroded. And as a result, people don't understand both the the responsibility they have as citizens in a democracy and equally um, the role they need to play in holding politicians to account. Mm. So to, on that note, I like, like you take mm-hmm. a sip of your pineapple juice. It's pretty good. Um, what is the platform enabling for you to create far more engagement? Okay, so it effectively does two or three things. Yep. Really important, the platform itself. The model is much broader than that, mm. the platform. So the digital platform that people can play with costs them nothing to join, costs them nothing to vote. First and foremost, it's an educational tool. So we say, and, and, you know, this is, I think, where we've had a lot of cut through with governments and universities, political professors and stuff, um, that you can't have real democracy without an informed constituency. Absolutely. Yeah, you can't ask people to vote about where they want to go if they don't even know where they are. So a big part of what the platform does is look to unpack the issues in a digestible 
um, way for all citizens so that when you're voting on things, you actually understand the ramifications of that. The next thing that it does is it guarantees you a voice on every issue. You don't have to use it if you don't want to, but it's there for you to use it if you do. Um, and that's really what democracy is about. It's not about forcing everybody to vote on everything. It's about saying, we are going to make a decision about X, disability rights, um, school funding, whatever it is. Marriage equality. Marriage equality. Um, you have a right to a voice in a democracy. Mm. Here is the platform in which you can have your say. If you choose to have it, it's there. Mm. And here's the information you need to understand your choices. And where does the information come from? Okay, so it's a it's quite a long process. Um uh, it's an eight-stage... Because that could be biased, couldn't it? Well, so it that's could. what I'm asking. So it's an eight-stage policy development process. It starts with raw content um, That's uh, that we work with universities yeah. and we have a professional research team. So right. these are people who can't have worked for political parties or ideological think tanks before and they do research for a living. Um, oh, okay. They come in and provide the raw data. The raw data, the other thing that's important to note, and this is another really critical intervention into democracy that we've made... Yep. Um, is we, we never have legislative conversations and we never have binary conversations because this idea of left and right is a nonsense, that you, there are only two choices that we as a society should, should make because those choices are being led by ideology. Ideology is the single greatest danger point in democracy because it presumes that there's an answer before the question's even been asked and it doesn't rely on fact. It relies on its view of the world. Mm. So what we say is, We will always give a choice of four options on every policy issue. They will be based on fact. All of that fact is 100% transparent to our constituency. So every vote we've done so far on the app, we've had five votes so far, and we've had no less than 150 international research reports, which are there freely available for anybody to see. You don't have to go into that much detail if you don't want to, but it's there. You can see why we framed the data, where the facts come from, who's writing that data, Everything is completely transparent. Can you give us an example of a question? Yep. For, so, you know, the um, audience that would be thinking. Yeah, well, the one, the one I use in the media a lot, uh, I'll use it only because the disparity of the options is, is so fast. Okay. So it's a good one to use. Yeah. It's not one we've done a vote on so Yet. far. Okay. Um, but the one I use is asylum seekers, mm. which in this country really divisive issue, um, and it, it tends to be uh, a left and right issue. now, And an uninformed issue. Oh, absolutely. Well, but they're all uninformed issues because people are cherry-picking the facts that absolutely. suit their particular ideological particular. position. Yeah. Um, so in, in this example, rather than in an Australian context saying, you know, do you support offshore processing in Nauru, as an example, binary yes-no question, which we don't do, what we would tend to do is ask, um, do you want your government to take a primarily humanitarian approach or a primarily national security approach? or a primarily financially pragmatic approach, or a primarily international law approach. And then we explain what each of those things mean. Mm. So if you believe in a humanitarian approach, these are the sorts of policy settings you could support, mm. and these are the ones you couldn't support. Here are the pros, here are the cons, here are the costs. And then we go into much more detail, which you can read if you want. So you might mm. sit there and go, well, I think I want a humanitarian approach, but I don't know enough from the minimum level of data that I, I that's available to me there. I'm going to go into the next, and you cascade down in the app, and you'll get a five-page overview with statistics and report information and so forth. You can get to the end of that and go, I'm not sure about that statistic, or I'm still not sure if I, I think that's right. Yeah. Then you can go into all of the 150 research reports plus. You can wade as deeply as you want to go. At this point, only about 2% of people who are voting are going all the way into the reports. Most of them are kind of stopping at the five-page overview. Yeah, okay. Um, 
which is interesting in itself, to be honest. Yeah. Um, could be information overload, which I get. It, it could. And, and you know, I suspect that people who are particularly interested in particular issues will dig further. And then when you want to say on something that isn't quite as important to you, you might just be satisfied with a slightly less amount mm. of information. Mm. Um, but once you've got, once you've gone through it, the, the two important things um, are that we're not asking you to choose one of those four. We're actually saying choose any of those which you can live with as a government position. Yeah. So you could say, well, I'll tell you mine. I'll disclose mine. You know, I've done it a few times now. Disclose my personal politics. Mm. So in that particular vote, I would say, yep, I could support a humanitarian approach as a primary approach. Mm. I could not support a national security approach as a primary approach. I could support financial pragmatic and I could support international law. So I would tick three of those four boxes mm. and say, any of those I can live with and that's fine. The other thing that's important is if I haven't read, which we can see in the app, the minimum amount of information for all four, my voting light never goes on. Because we say, if you choose not to inform yourself, we choose not to listen to you. Because Interesting. that's okay. your responsibility within a democracy is to actually know what you're voting on. And our responsibility is to make sure that the majority position is then enacted. Okay. That's what we do. Um, and so you would make that vote. Now, interestingly, when you're not asking people to have a binary yes, no, or singular perspective, because, and in that example, I'll give you an example. So the Greens, obviously, against offshore processing in any way. Uh, the government and the ALP, very much in favour of offshore processing. <laughs> and when we go to the election, we're asked to believe that it's impossible in one human head to want to simultaneously protect the borders of the country and not torture asylum seekers. Mm. Those two things, you couldn't want those two things at the same time. Mm. That's not how the human brain works. So what, what our model does is try and find some of the nuance in that and go, well, actually, that's important to me and that's important to me. And the other thing that's unique to our model is that once the policy question has been asked, if we get what we consider to be a majority position and our majority position is not 51%, it's 60%, once a 60% majority has been found in each of the questions, that then becomes my vote policy for all candidates running. Mm. So they now have to stick to that outcome and as represent. determined by the people and represent that outcome. Um, Which is democracy. Well, I mean, that's the kicker, is. You isn't have, it? You have to hold people to account to Yes. That. And the other thing that's critically important about it is that under the model there are a number of uh, and this is kind of under the hood stuff design work, yeah. which you don't necessarily see on the surface. But um, there are I a number love of under the hood though. <laughs> yeah, well, that's where all, the detail is where it all yeah, matters. Yeah, it exactly. all it all comes true, comes to life. So we've got a number of mechanisms that protect that majority position, and not in an oppressive way, but to make sure that it actually is the majority position. So, for example, let's say we took that vote that, I, that we just discussed. Yep. And let's say. 75% of people want an international law approach. That's the primary approach that the constituency wants. When we started this, uh, every political professor that we spoke to all over the world said the same thing to us. It's impossible to find a 60% majority in a two-party binary Western system today. Can't be done. Fool's errand. Don't even waste your time. We've had five votes. We've never had less than 60%. Uh, and the last wow. vote we had was 88% support. And the reason is because when you're not asking people to choose for this, yeah. you're saying... Tell us all what the things you, you can with? live with, and now you know 75% of people can live with that, 68% can live with that, and 43 can live with that. It's a very different dialogue. Um, and what it does is it takes the heat out of the political conversation because you're no longer saying, well, I'm from the left or I'm from the right, and therefore we're going to enact this piece of legislation mm. in which 50% of the constituency is pissed off with you from day one. Mm. You're going, the vast majority of people, the vast majority Agreed. of you guys said, this is, you could live with this, you want this. Yeah. We're just enacting what you told us you wanted to do. 
but he, but here's where it gets really sort of for me from a, a systems architecture point of view sexy and interesting. If, for example, we took that vote and 75% on international law and then we go a year in and new information comes to light or laws change, the system automatically tells us that we need to take that vote again because there is information which may change the way people feel about this particular position. The other thing that it does is we have this built-in counter in effect. Is this part of the blockchain technology? Yes, it's the way that the voting mechanism has been built. So it effectively timestamps. So we take the vote today, we take that vote, and it doesn't just tell us the day that the vote was taken, which is important in terms of if it goes two years, we have to take the vote again anyway just to make sure that it's majority. But the other thing that it will do is it timestamps at the same time how many members we have on the platform at that time. And if less than 25% have voted on that vote, it can't be policy. Yes, because it okay. doesn't actually represent the majority. Well, of... not even the majority. It doesn't even represent enough to warrant it as a uh, substantial policy position. And so we then have a second round and third round mechanism to that point, which I won't go into now because it's just more detail. But you can see it all on the website. Mm. Um, but you know, every step has been thought through. The process itself in the policy formation process, before anything ever makes its way onto the app, it has to go through our ethics committee and our governance committee. So our ethics committee is headed by Professor Lucy Bernholtz of Stanford University. Our governance committee is being run by a whole group of former judges, um, and they ask very different questions. So the ethics committee is specifically looking at the frames and the content as it's been created, and they're asking, is the question leading? Is the wording biased? Is the data fair? Is it validated? Is it peer-reviewed? So is it real? Is it verifiable? And does it look like we want people to choose that one or choose that one? Yeah. Because it has to be completely clean. Since we've done this, we've never had a single vote that we haven't had to send back and change one frame for being leading. So we know the process works. Yeah, very Um, robust. Yeah, I mean, we put something out that's leading and that's the end of our model. It doesn't work anymore. So you have to have integrity in that. And, And often, you know, you find the things that you're sending it back for and I'm not privy to a lot of this because I'm removed because that's another part of the process that the decision makers within the organisation can't have access to what the votes are going to be before the votes come out mm. until the final sign-off because we could prejudice the outcome or prejudice the way it's written them. So we're at arm's length as well. Um, but as you go through that process, then the governance committee comes in and they say, you know, is it legal? Does it meet the laws of the country in which it's being proposed? So mm. there's no point going to the people and saying, you want to choose this this outcome, 80% say yes, and then the law says, well, you can't actually do it. So there's no way you could enact that. Yeah. Um, so that's the first thing. The next, second thing is does it meet our constitution, my vote constitution? And so that's, you know, them it's about um, underlying values. So transparency, accountability, equality, meritocracy, um, secularism. Um, so, you know, if it's religiously biased, if it's oppressing a particular minority, we would never put that vote up. Yeah, um, and so they check for that. They also tell us where we might have um, legal challenge in the event that any of those particular four were chosen, which is a good heads up for the council. Yeah, okay. Um, and then the other thing, I guess, that's of significance is we've time locked. We've given a maximum time term um, to all the major senior executive positions and founding positions. So, for example, one of the things we don't want to do is replace an existing power structure with a new power structure Mm. in which I and my co-founder are the head of how every government in the world works. That's not what we're interested in. Um, So in 2022, my partner has to leave, and in 2023, I have to leave, and I'm never allowed to come back. I'm not allowed to come back as an executive. I'm not allowed to come back as a board member. I'm done. Um, And that's about continually changing it over. It has to be bigger than the individuals who are in it. 
um, but it gave us enough time to try and push it along far enough that it can kind of exist on its own without us. So what does that? What's that ter- term? Eight years? So six years. Six years. Okay. Yeah, six years from the time we set up the not for profit. And what set the six years? I mean, it was just a, it was just a, a, a random a negotiation within the council what we thought was a reasonable period of time to get as far as we wanted to, and it worked in reverse. So. Um, some of the people who started with us had to leave after one year and then two years and then three years. And so there are people who have already left. Okay. Um, so our founding chairman, Dr. Richard Haynes, who Forbes calls one of the 20 smartest people in the world, two years in, he's gone. That was his term. That's what was written into the constitution and he had to stand out. Now he's still very much a friend of what we're doing. Um, and personally, he's a mentor to me, but, okay. but he's not formally involved in the movement in any way. He's, he's a, an advocate. Yeah. He'll tell anybody and everybody about it, yeah. but he doesn't have a role. He's not in the decision-making process. Okay. Well, listen, so I know you've just been to Davos. I have. And, uh, you know, were there any surprises there? And, you know, who did you connect with there, given it's the bastion <laughs> of the legacy system and it was 500,000 a seat to be in the audience at the main auditorium? I mean, what what did you learn there? Who well, did you meet? I, I think, um, well, I'll be... I'll be Slightly diplomatic about how I answer this. So um, I think the important thing to – so it was an amazing experience. It okay. was probably, a bit chilly. A, as I said, it was very cold. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of walking. Um, I think as I said to the, the team when I got home, um, without question it was the most incredible professional trip of – business trip of my life. Yeah. Um, and not because of who the people were or because of the event itself – I think just because the experience is not what you expect it to be. And so we went there with very, you know, we went there for a specific purpose. Uh, I was speaking on three panels. I was a judge of the UN hackathon for the SDG goals. And my co-founder was a mentor for the UN hackathon. So okay. So that's why we thought we were going there. We didn't really have um, an eye on anything else. We thought if we could meet some people and have some good conversations, that would be great. But we weren't counting on that in any way. Um, and also we were newbies, so we didn't know if we fit in and how we fit in. And, you know, we're about speaking truth to power and there are a lot of governments that are very upset about what we do. And, yeah, and so you're we disrupting didn't, them. We didn't think, you know, anybody would be rolling out the red carpet for us. Mm. So um, <clears throat> what happened in the end was a real surprise. So um, apart from the fact that when we got there almost immediately, it became clear that people knew who we were, which we really didn't expect. Um, so, you know, I, I sat down on one panel. And a German professor who was speaking at, at the forum came to me and said, oh, you're Adam from my vote. I have a whole slide in my presentation about you guys. And it was like, really? Okay, wow. that's interesting. Um, and then I met a head of state uh, who came to me and said, oh, Adam, I was just on the my vote website last week. You've got to come to my country in a month and sit down with us at our round table, which I'm doing. I leave in two weeks. So, Are you allowed to say who that is? <clears throat> no, not at the moment. So all I'll say is Europe, European. So, okay. Um, so look, while we were there, we met with um, we met with three heads of state. Okay. Uh, all three want to work with us. Um, wow. I leave again in two weeks to go to two of those three places. Um, and are they countries where the democracies have really faltered? Uh, or no. Are they open no, to? No, I would say one of them is a newer democracy, okay. and they're trying to. They have a very clear vision of becoming a digital leader in Europe. They have a very progressive government. They're very open-minded. Um, and that particular president, you know, his speech about what he wants for his country and the way that he's going about building it, you you know, if we were going to write a speech for a president, it, that would have been that it. Was it was speech. pretty much perfect from, from our perspective. 
And so we've been invited into the tent to talk about how we can build my vote into their system. Yep. Um, a much smaller nation who has some credibility challenges okay. has a new head of state um, who is saying we need to fix the reputational problems and not just from a glossy sort of 10,000-foot view. We actually <clears throat> excuse me, need to make the structural changes to justify whatever change of perception will come about. Mm. Um, and so, again, I'll be there uh, with Hamish um, Next, not this month, next month. And then one that I, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but to say one of the big five countries in the world mm. um, has approached us with a really interesting opportunity that we're already moving to contract stage on, wow. um, which when we announce it, I think is going to shock the world. You know, but that's, So watch this space. Yeah, but we've signed a confidentiality for the time being. So it's, it's, yeah. it's incredibly exciting and the scale at which we'll be able to play, um, you know, unlike which are even in Australia, yeah, you know, we, we will compete. We have candidates who will run in Australia. It's a country of 24 and a half million people. You know, these kind of projects, this, particularly this one project, is multiples of the Australian population that we can play with straight away. So um, it's it's pretty exciting. Just times. as well, you've been iterating for a few years, hey? Yeah, just just <laughs> as well. Um, and so, so that was terrific. And then we also, you know, we were able to meet with... Acon the Rapper. Uh, yeah, we met. We met with a few celebrities, which is kind of nice. I lived. I, in, you kept I lived. I, yeah, I lived and worked in Hollywood for a long time, so that actually didn't mean a whole lot to me. But, um, but it, you know, we met with a number of. I guess the best way to describe them, and it's a sickening thing to say, in light of Davos and how people feel about Davos and how I feel about Davos. But genuine power brokers, people yeah, who power, status, money. Yeah, um, and and what we found fascinating about those conversations. Um, is the extent to which those people who are actually benefiting by the status quo are saying, no, 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 the system doesn't work anymore. And, uh, yes, we're a beneficiary of it, but it's not right and the inequality is not right uh, and people deserve a voice. And so a number of those people, probably most pleasingly, have said, we want you to come to our country and we'll help you build it there um, because people need a voice and the model's right. Um, and so a lot of those conversations will happen again when I'm overseas over the next two or three months. So and so you were surprised by that? Shocked. You know, we, we left thinking, as we had for the last six and a half years, that the movement was about competing with governments. Yeah. We came back thinking actually there are two parts to the movement. There's the movement that will work with governments who genuinely want to make improvements to their system, mm. and then there's the, the part, the original part, that will compete with governments who aren't interested in giving people a voice. Mm. And so our Australian government, as an example, the UK government, the US government, we're going to go hell for leather at making sure that yeah. they pay for what they've done. So how is it go? How is the movement going in Australia? I'm interested Slowly. to hear about <laughs> exactly. I mean, and that's partly why I was really interested in talking to you because. Yeah. You know, a lot of the people that I know are very political and yet they haven't heard of my vote. Yep. And I think there's a reason for well, that. Well, I th look, I think that's interesting because we've had a ton of media, like yes. really a massive amount of media for a movement like ours. So, we've so been it's on... a representation of a phenomenon that's happening in Australia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. You know, this is a Melbourne-born idea that's yeah. taking off around the world and not in Australia at the moment. Um, now, that said, we have a number of people who are intending to run at both the next state elections um, as well as the next federal election in Australia, we haven't run yet. We haven't entered into that environment yet. <clears throat> and we have a government, we have an opposition, who are seemingly disinterested in fixing the system, 
because they benefit from the way the system works. Um, that's not the case overseas. In, in terms of Australia, what we're about to do, I can say here's an exclusive for you, we're about to yeah. announce a CEO of My Vote Australia as a distinct individual chapter. Um, one of the things I think we mistakenly did last year um, was assume that because we were here, we could run both global and local in the same way with the same people at the same time, and we don't believe we can do that. We, yeah. Given how much international work there is now, yeah. um, we actually will have a dedicated workforce for the Australian purpose Chapter, yeah. um, in preparing for the 2019 election. That'll be about um, finding candidates, training candidates, getting the message right, building the awareness. But when you say to me, I mean, it's interesting when people say, you know, again, people in Australia who are politically involved and haven't heard of my vote. You know, we've been on the left media and the right media yeah. and everywhere in between, from, from oh, Triple J Hack to ABC off. Radio National to Sky News to, yeah. you know, Fin Review to the A. We've been everywhere. But what I'm thinking is I genuinely think there's a huge apathy in middle-class I think I think that's probably and right. I think they've switched off from all news well, because I, I think of think that's the, right. the news cycle. And you, you, hit, you hit one of the demographic issues on the head for us, and this is something that's been a little bit inexplicable for a while. We're kind of getting into the meat of it now. Yeah. Um, but what we know from our membership base is our members tend to be, as most people expect all of them are, they yeah. tend to be... Um, sort of half of them are young, urban, well-educated, digital savvy. And yeah. people just assume that's the only audience that we have. But the other half of our audience is over 55, yeah. rural, disenfranchised, feel like they're underrepresented. Um, and what we haven't yet been able to crack is that that middle bit, you know, families, blue-collar workers, every day, yeah. you know, paying the bills, going doing the just sending the kids to school. Doing the daily grind. That's the bit we haven't been able to have cut through with. And we don't know if it's because they're politically disengaged or disinterested or um, actually they're not interested in change or we don't know yet. So, mm. um, But at either end of the spectrum, we have enormous support. Yeah, which is why I say I think 2018 will be a massive year for traction because I think slowly but surely those people who may be disengaged who you know, who are that, that milieu that you're trying to attract, I do think that they're going to hear a lot more about you through the recent announcements. I, I, I think they will too. The next two months. I think they will too. And, when they, you know, when we announce who the CEO will be and when we announce who some of the candidates will be, I think that will start to yeah. to create a bit of a buzz as well. So you've found the <clears> CEO or you're hiring uh, for a CEO? We're hiring for a CEO, but we've found somebody who we think could do the job. We just haven't quite made the decision yet. Okay. So that person so will have to meet the council and go yep. through a number of hoops and we have to complete due diligence and all those sorts of things. But there's a very impressive individual who we think would do a spectacular job, but we haven't made an offer yet. And so, so you know, that's exciting. But I think the other thing is, and this is <clears throat> this is hard for people to come to terms with, in Australia when I say this, and even our members and our supporters who hear me say this kind of, you know, they wince a little bit and they get, they wriggle in their seats. But as a global council, we had to sit up and acknowledge about mid last year that it may never work in Australia and it may work in a hundred other countries around the world. And that's okay. So we want it to work in Australia. I mean, originally I started this because I want the environment in which my kids to, to grow. I want that environment to be better. And if we can have an impact here, obviously, we want to do that. Um, but every environment, every nation state that we go to is in a different cultural position and in a different position within its um, its democracy and its governance and what it will accept and its media. And so all of those things 
start to shape the likelihood that something like this could work. And so that's why, you know, when you go into to Europe, where there are so many new democracies because they were under fascism or mm. communism for so long, they don't know what democracy is. So they're completely open-minded to going, well, there's a better way. Tell us what the better way is because we've only yeah. been doing this for 40 years. So we don't really understand what, you know, we're not wedded to anything. Yeah. When you go into Australia, you go into England, there's it's hundreds and hundreds of years of um, behaviour that you're asking people to change and that's mm. a much more challenging activity. I was going to it, say, what's the biggest challenge in Australia so, though, for you? They're the ones that need it the most because they're so entrenched in a, in a path that is not good for them. Um, <clears throat> you're kind of going, listen, a couple hundred years is enough. It's time to pull yourself back out of this now. Um, but people have to make that conscious decision. Do you feel people feel they've got the personal power? I mean, I know it's tech-driven. Some, pe- some people do. I always talk about my vote <coughs> with the people that I know. Is it's, it's, it's time because of the tech. The tech can enable the constant real-time engagement with voters about mm-hmm. policy issues that are important to them, that are going to, you know, characterise their future. Yeah, I, I think I think people fall into different categories. So there are people, as you've just described, they're the really engaged people anyway. Mm. They're interested in the issues. They're across what's going on, and they they want to, want to, they make want a to say. But they just want to say. They just yeah. want to be involved. In it. But you've also got a whole group of people who are so disenfranchised. Yeah. And who say, well, you know, our market research tells us two things. They either say, I don't understand enough and therefore I'm not sure I should have a say. Or they say, I'm really interested, but it won't make a difference if I have a say because nobody's going to listen anyway. So yeah, what's the point? exactly. And so that's then about articulating how we hold representatives to account and how the, you know, the mechanisms around this. And this was the area that in particular when I did the live Sky News interview, they were most interested in talking was what do you mean there are fines for politicians who ignore the majority position? How are you going to get away with that? And that's what democracy is. There has to be mm. a ramification for ignoring yeah. your constituency. And the marriage equality debate is really fascinating, independent of the results and how any individual feels about it. But here you have this situation, independent of the fact that it was a, um, um, a voluntary postal vote, mm. but still the vast majority of the country voted. And so now you have this situation where Politicians actually know at an electoral level what their electorate wanted and they had the choice to do the democratic thing. And a number of them didn't. Chose not to. And if you know what your constituency want and overwhelmingly they want to go in a particular direction and you abstain or ignore, my, my view is you've lost the right to run again. If you, that is the only time in your professional political career that you actually know what people want mm. and, you and you still won't do it. You don't have any right to stand up again and say you're going to represent that electorate, that you're done. And my vote will actively and aggressively campaign against those people. And I wonder if there's a mechanism to even get them out currently because if they're not rep- – what have you got three years well, to go? Well, that presumes that the Australian Electoral Commission has any teeth or any interest in doing the right thing, which it doesn't. You know, it's a mechanism unto itself. It's a huge bureaucracy. It's outdated. It doesn't make sense anymore. It's another podcast. Well, that's a whole other conversation. And they <laughs> yes. don't like us, you know, and nor should they like us because we're going to replace them. Yeah. And the inevitability of us replacing them is written on the wall for everybody to see. They're non-technical. They don't understand how to talk to the electorate. They're slow and they're cumbersome. The way that they work, which is the way that most bureaucracies work, and it's the same as big business as well, this is how we do things so it has to fit inside this box. Yeah, Rather than asking the question of, is this actually the best way to do it? Is it mm. doing what it was intended to do? And, and once you get to the point where you go, actually, this mechanism and this bureaucracy and this set of laws and these operating principles don't actually do what democracy was meant to do, mm. maybe it's time to replace all of that. Mm. 
well, self-transforming a of, in a way. It's like transforming to what's relevant. Well, that, it's, that's one thing, absolutely. But it's also disempowering. There aren't a lot of people who choose to be disempowered. So, yeah. and this is this isn't an ongoing conversation I have. And in fact, um, I have it out with a, uh, a political insider, a former politician who I really like and really respect. Um, ideologically, we don't have a lot in common. But he's a, he's, a, he's a gentleman and he is a good thinker and he genuinely wants the right things and he wants to do, the, do it the right way. And I think he's a, he's a force for good. But he will argue all the time, in my more revolutionary moments as opposed to operational moments, you know, so when I'm not being the chief steward CEO, when I'm being the democracy warrior, yeah. um, you know, I will be a bit more aggressive about how I articulate these ideas and the a few kind expletives of, in there. I'm, I'm always <laughs> partial to an f bomb, um, but but you know, and he will write to me just consistently and say, you know, this doesn't sound like a great new movement. This is, you know, these are the sorts of things that happen in politics as usual. And and I'll say to him, you know, I said to him yesterday on Twitter actually, um, you know, I, I have no intention of ingratiating myself to a group of people who don't think my voice is worth anything and who are manipulating the system to ensure that I don't have one. Mm. So, you know, it's all good and well to play nice. And in Davos, we played very, very nice. Mm. But when the people that are sitting across from you are doing everything in their power to make sure that your children don't have a say. To disempower the electorate. I'm not going to play nice. It's gloves off. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, the thing that I think the political establishment are starting to understand, I had somebody, a Canberra insider, say to us, uh, this would have been September or October last year, I was speaking at a function here in Melbourne and they came up to me and said, why is it that every time I ask anybody in Canberra in the halls of Parliament House mm. about my vote and about you, they say you're the enemy? And I say they say that because they make me the enemy. Mm. In other enlightened countries, they're inviting us in as guests. Here, nobody's prepared to actually make the system better because nobody wants to disempower themselves. Mm. And the problem for these people is we've got a better model, we've got a better narrative, and, and we're not scared. Got, and they've so, got too much skin in the game. Yeah, and Look we're at not, negative gearing. Look at all of those factors. And, and we're not Political ideological. We're, we're neither left nor right. We just want the best answer, not a particular answer. Mm. We want every person to have an equal say. We want no money in lobby groups in politics whatsoever. We've completely got rid of them. We can't even accept corporate dollars of any kind under our constitution. Mm. Um, we're not about protecting our own power base because in four years I'm gone. Um, and, you know, we can't be intimidated. I'm not scared of Rupert Murdoch. No. So, you know, we're in a digital world and Rupert's a dinosaur. And mm. the problem is that every politician in this country is petrified of him because he makes and breaks governments. So well, he's not right. going to make and break ours. Mm. So, you know, we live in a digital world where the Googles and the Facebooks and the Apples of the world are the ones that hold currency. Mm. An old antiquated advertising model of pay for my content and um, and please read my newspaper. It's gone. That was it's yesteryear, like the political system. So you know, as his power erodes, and you know what's also interesting to me, and this is kind of a side thing. Um, I tweet a lot, yeah, about a variety of different That'll issues. Um, but without, without, I'll put those in the show notes. Show notes. The the most. Always the most popular, retweeted, most liked tweets that I ever send mm. um, are ones that relate to Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, people just he's so despised. loathe him. Yeah, um, and yet the politicians will never stand up against him. No, um, and so you it's know, a sad fact. as we've said in the past, yeah. if everybody else is too scared to do it, then we'll do it. If that's the role we have to play, then that's the role we'll play. Goals for the next three years for my vote. Uh, so, well, I, I won't I say, could say the next year. Uh, yeah. I could say five it's, years. It's a really hard one. So, so you uh, tell me the goals. You, you know, every trip we take, 
new opportunities in there. Yeah. So what I'll say is, I'll give you a transformer. I'll, I don't know about that. <laughs> Probably just a masochist. But um, what I will say is this: that in the next ten years, and this is very public, we've said this before. It's on yeah. our website. Um, our goals in the next ten years are to be first and foremost the largest political um, brand in the world. Um, we want elected officials to fifty parliaments around the world in ten years. And we want to have emancipated the voice of 3 billion people on the platform, which is 3 billion people who are voting on the legislation and policies that affect their lives. Mm. That's what we're trying to do. Fabulous goal. So you've got a lot going on. What do you do every day? I'm going personally now. What do you do every day that you feel contributes to you being able to hang in there to some level of wellness? Because... You've Look, got an insane schedule. I do have an insane schedule, um, and I'm. I tend to take on more rather than less, but um, mm. I, I don't know that I do anything per se that helps me get up in the morning and keep doing it. I, I think I'm so passionate about this issue that 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 alone does it. And I think you know I, I'm a pretty hands-on dad. Um, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, what do you do? Well, I need to do is look at my kids you. every day, and that yeah, grounds me grounds into why I'm doing this. Yeah, so, into the maelstrom of what's going off the craziness yeah. of this space. What grounds well, you? Well, yeah. well, my family grounds me, yeah. you know, first and foremost. But also I have a ticking time bomb, which is this deadline that I have to leave. So yeah. I, I'm prepared to absolutely flog possible. myself for six years yeah. because I know that's all I've got. And so after that, I, I can't do it anymore. So I want to push it as far as I can push it so that whoever comes into the seat next inherits something that's working, not is inheriting another six-year slog. Yeah. Um, and so that that makes it a little bit easier because you can sort of see the finishing line. Yeah. And so you go, yeah, it hurts and I'm tired and I, it's another plane I've got to get on and it's, you know, but but you know that there's a fixed period of time. Um, and, and truly all you need to do is build Lego towers with the kids and go, this is what I'm doing. I'm doing it for them. Yeah. So, you know, I, I can always go back and have a corporate career afterwards, although I'm not really interested in that. Um, I'd really like to go back into the education sector at university and stuff. Yeah. Um, and I want to write, which is what I really love doing. But, um, but you know, I, I, you know, just to... I mean, and on that note, I guess, what would you, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self if you sat down and had a bevy with him? <laughs> oh, God, I made so many mistakes. Um, uh you know, honestly, I, I think it would be the same advice. I, I give, I mentor a lot of startup entrepreneurs, yeah, um, really young men and women, um, and I would give myself the same advice that I give them. Uh, you know, in my opinion, the two most important skill sets in that environment, in that growing, learning, entrepreneurial environment, which I've learnt, are actually exactly the same in politics as it turns out. Yeah, okay. Um, um, the most important is self-awareness. And knowing what you're good at, knowing what you're not good at, and surrounding yourself with people who are better than you at the things that you're not good at. Good at. Because we can't be good at everything and trying to pretend that we are is folly. And then the second thing is, um, which I think really makes the difference, this is the difference between being good and being great um, and having some impact and having a real impact, um, is you have to work on mastering, if it's at all possible, as close as you can get, to mastering cognitive dissonance. Because the nature of the world that we live in is it will constantly pull you in opposing directions on lots of different issues all the time. And, again, it goes back to this this idea that a particular character set or ideology will always lean you this way or that way um, is where the problem arises. You have to have 
the contextual intelligence to be able to go, no, 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 given where we're trying to go in this instance for this window of time on this decision, I need to lean a little bit this way. Well, then I need a little, a little bit that way. And you need to kind of be able to navigate the waters on an ongoing perpetual basis rather than go, this is how I am and I'm not prepared to change and I'm not prepared to adapt and I'm not prepared to read what's going on. I'm just on mm. me and take it or leave it. Mm. I used to be like that when I was younger and I've learned that that's not the way to go about making change. Yeah, life's a bit more complex. It's not binary. Significantly more complex. And, and we yeah. as individuals are more complex, you know. We're, we're not, we're not um, you know, we're multidimensional. And mm. so that means that we have to understand uh, where our compromise points lies and where they where they don't and where you go, look, this is not negotiable. Um, so I for- mean, in a way, I guess what you're saying as well is you can be a libertarian and a humanitarian. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they're mutually exclusive. Yeah. It's like actually those two things can be held at the same time within an individual. Yeah, but but it's even, I mean, even the labels make me uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah sure. It's more about, it's more just You know about where I'm going, going to yeah, yeah. with those labels? It's like there's a whole heap of principles underlying yeah. those labels. But, but also, you know, even, I'll give you an example. So, I mean, I'm definitely left-leaning, so this is not Me too. You know, five seconds on my Twitter account and you'll see that. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely more on the progressive side. Yeah. Um, but even, you know, I, I posted something a few nights ago um, when the news poll came out about, you know, the latest news poll about uh, two-party preferred and preferred prime minister. And so, uh, yet again, the ALP is two-party preferred up by four or five points. And yet again, Bill Shorten is a mile behind in preferred prime minister, 14 mm. points behind. Mm. And I made the point about the fact that, that the people on the left, progressives, need to really start thinking about that statistic because mm. um, we have a, a government that's on the nose that's had 26 consecutive news polls, two-party preferred down. Uh, it will it will in all likelihood lose the next election by a really significant margin. Yeah. And the leader that the left is putting up is so disliked within the community that still can't even get to a positive position for the end. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, it's an irrelevant thing and that statistic doesn't mean anything. And it may not in, in when it comes to the election time. But what it does say is that there's there's no cut through there. Um, and, and I think that when I put that out there, and I didn't even say it, I posed the question. I said, this is an inst- interesting statistic that people should really start considering. The left started attacking me as being, you know, a traitor to Bill Shorten. Mm. And you're going, if you can't even legitimately look at data and facts and statistics as opposed to everything having to be an opinion and an ideology, mm. you know, people are going, you know, how can you say that? How can you say that that he's not popular? I'm, going, I'm, I'm not saying it. The, the statistics tell you. you 20 in a row, yeah. he, he has, in fact, He's never the been the preferred prime minister. Never, yeah. not once, one time. I'm not, wake up, There's people. no commentary on this. This is a fact. Yeah. So what is it telling you that the person that you want to lead you into the next election doesn't have enough popularity in the community, potentially, to get you over the line should the two-party preferred get closer? And people are just unable to remove the ideology from themselves and just go, you know, on this issue, what the left says, I like. And on this issue, actually what the right has put forward makes a bit of sense. But it has to be, you no, know, I'm in this camp or I'm in this camp. Yeah, ideologically based, you know. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, more and more people are learning that that's not how the world works. And so I think that hard left, hard right camp is becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. And in fact, all the data tells us that that's the case. Yeah, their um, votes are being eroded every day. Well, you know, membership of the Labor Party, the Liberal Party, is less than 1% of the Australian population. So Says if, it all. If that's the case, if people don't feel compelled enough to, to connect to that ideology as mm. a member, 
they're in the toilet. It's over. And the vast majority of people are just going, we just want some good fucking decisions, you know. Yeah. Can somebody give us a good decision based on some fact, please? Mm. Um, and, and this is the problem that, you know, the, the currency of power at the moment is hypocrisy. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a hypocrisy hot potato. So one government will be in and say one thing, and then as soon as they're opposition, they'll do the exact opposite, and they mm. just keep reversing these mm. positions. Mm. And we see it at state governments. We see it in federal governments. And, you know, what, what I hope is that people start to understand that there is a real distinction between democracy and politics. Democracy is about the voice of the people and enacting the will of the people, and politics is about power. Um, and there's far too much politics in our democracy and nowhere near enough democracy in our politics. Mm, I love that. So, listen, you've said that you really want Australia to be a beacon for I don't think it'll be the first. Movement. In fact, at this point, it'll be about the fifth or sixth. But I'm yes, feeling I would that like as well. But if people are wanting to get more involved, what can they do? Tell us what they can myvote.org.au, do. MyVote.org.au, um, which I think is about to transition to MyVote.com very shortly. Okay. Um, but volunteer come to one of our info nights. Mm. Wednesday nights, we always do late nights. We meet people who want to come in. Um, so that's every Wednesday? Yeah, pretty much every Wednesday in our Collingwood office. Okay. Um, what if in, they were thinking about becoming a candidate? Yeah, so so if you write to us through the website, you could do that so that you can, under the um, Get Involved section of the website, it will have volunteer, donate, become a candidate, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. and there will be some forms, and then we'll get back to you, uh, meet you, talk to you about the opportunity mm. um, and then we start to put people through the beginnings of training programs. There's a much more extended training program being concluded at the moment. It's being written right now um, and then there'll be media training and a whole variety of other things um, but we will start to put together once the CEO is announced, we will start to build the 2019 election strategy which we'll do in concert with our candidates um, and, again, everything we do is transparent mm. so mm. Um, there are no secrets in my vote. Uh, to the point that, you know, from next month we're going to start publicly broadcasting our, our board meetings, which no political group in the world does. Love it. So you can hear every decision and all the conversations. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's lots of ways we need help. We, we're a growing movement. We have more opportunity than we have resource. So the more the merrier. We want everybody to come. Yeah, and, and I hope that message gets out there. So thank you so much for taking the Thanks time today. Me. You're a complete legend. I love I'm everything you Not a you're legend doing. at all, but thank you for having me. Oh, 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 oh,